You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Noelle Garan. Um, my husband and I lead the next city village here at New City. Um, it's our village that meets on Sunday afternoons, the second and fourth Sunday of every month for um, kiddos and young adults from age third grade all the way to high school. Um, and I'm going to be reading our scripture today is Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 through 21. Uh, it's on page 973 in the Black Pew Bible. Uh, under your seats. I'll give you guys a second. All right. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant to sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Noel. I appreciate you reading scripture today. Hi, friends. It's good to be back. Um, Last week, I uh, had the week off from preaching. Uh, Pastor Keith did a masterful job in helping us um, continue to explore Paul, this guy defending his ministry and apostleship. Um, And then uh, I ended up actually getting sick, so I wasn't even here last week at all. So very excited to be back, very excited to um, preach this word. This text um, is the beginning of Paul kind of moving us to an important place in the book of Galatians. Paul is the author, if you're new uh, to the New Testament here. Um, But what we're really going to start talking about today is what the gospel does. 
what it does in a person, okay? And we're talking beyond the theological level. That's very important, that's the basis, okay, of everything that the gospel accomplishes. But we're gonna begin to see how does the gospel work its way out in the life of a person? Another way for you to ask this, if I believe this good news, what does life now look like? How do I live as a Christian, right? These are the questions that all of us um, are at one time or another um, asking. And it's based in what chapters one and chapters two um, have been really fleshing out for us. Um, The Bible here uses the word justified or justification. And when you hear that word, I want you to immediately think of the word justice, right? So picture a courtroom for just a moment and you're on trial, the charges against you, um, you've been caught on video, you were caught red-handed, there are 17 witness testimonies that says you're guilty, Um, you were recorded on a phone call saying, yep, I did rob that bank, I did do it, I murdered that guy, Um, uh, talk to you later, right? You hung up the phone. Um, I'm teaching you how to get caught for a crime as well this morning. Um, And all of the evidence lobbied again you is stacking up and up and up and up and up. And finally, the jury comes in and reads the verdict. You are guilty. And then, right at the last moment, you hear in the silence, boom, the vast doors of the courtroom open and in walks Jesus. And Jesus looks at the judge and he says, He's not responsible and guilty for this. I'm responsible and guilty for this. And all of a sudden, they're like, but we have all this footage. And then um, he looks back at, they pull the video back up, and instead of you in the video, now it's Jesus in the video. Now it's Jesus who has all this evidence stacked against him, even though he didn't do it. And you walk out of the courtroom free and clear while Jesus takes the penalty for your sins. Friends, that is justification. You have been given a right standing with God that you could not earn. That is the basis of the Christian life. You are free not because you figured out a strategy to get free. You are not free because you're incredibly talented or because you're winsome or because you were able to figure life out perfectly. You are made free by the blood of Christ in your place. And this is the foundation of Paul's gospel. Because the people in Galatia, they started to believe, well, Jesus' justifying blood is really good news, it is, but we need to help him just a little bit to make sure that we're saved. We're gonna help him by becoming Jews first, by getting circumcised. And that's not usually our thing, right? We're not thinking I need to become a Jew before I can come to Jesus, but we add things to the gospel all the time man, if I just make enough money, if I just get these letters by my name, if I just do this amount of good things and believe in the Lord Jesus, then I can be justified. And that is as false a gospel as they were believing here in the book of Galatians. And so now we begin to say, I believe this. God has declared me just, not guilty, and free. Now what do I do? If you are anything like me, there is an obvious gap between what God has declared to be true about you and the behaviors of your life. Anybody else, just me? There is a gap 
between my what God has declared to be true and my experience of reality. Right? This is what uh, the Bible talks about, the difference between imputed righteousness, that's the righteousness that Jesus gives us, and realized righteousness, that actually my life is changing. I'm beginning to look more and more like Jesus. And here's what tends to happen, my friends. You recognize this, you see this and feel this all the time. When you start to see, I'm not changing, I'm not looking enough like Jesus. You start to feel this guilt and this shame and this pressure. And so, instead of drilling deep into the gospel, you say, I need to move on from the gospel. Right, I gotta leave the gospel behind and I gotta figure out another way that I can finally improve the behaviors of my life. And we do that, friends, to our shame. It's like disconnecting a car from its engine. It doesn't work. If there's one thing I want you to remember, really the core of this test is that the gospel is the engine of the Christian life. This is what Paul demonstrates in how he does ministry and how he compels this church. He believes that the power of the Christian life is the gospel. You need some power to obey to love God, to show up to your life. The gospel, friends, is the power. And what I think we'll see in this text, what I wanna walk us through this morning, are a couple of myths that we believe about the gospel that disconnect us from its power. Does that make sense? Mistruths, half-truths, even outright lies that we believe that disconnect us from the power of the gospel. Okay, so three myths today. I'm gonna read the three myths to you and then we'll start trucking through them together. Number one, myth number one, Christianity is only up and to the right. Myth number two, the gospel is a second chance. And myth number three, I can't change. Okay, let's go back up to the top of the text. Myth number one, when you look back at verse 11 with me in the text, it says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, that's Peter, I opposed him to his face. I love that. The boldness, right? I, I, we're, we're typically a much more gentle culture. Stuff like this offends our sensibilities a little bit. But Paul just stands up in the middle of dinner when he sees his friend acting a fool. And he's like, Peter, what's going on? Why does he oppose him to his face? Because he stood condemned. It was obvious that he wasn't lined up with the gospel. Verse 12, for, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So I want you to notice what's happening right here, okay? So Peter, um, he is part of this Gentile church. Peter was previously a Jew, right? Jesus pulled him out of Judaism. And now Peter is out planting these churches, serving churches, and he's sitting with people who aren't Jews, which the Bible calls Gentiles. So unless you are Jewish by heritage in the room, you are considered a Gentile, okay? Um, and so the Gentiles don't have to observe the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament law. 
Now, Jewish people, um, they eat what's called a kosher diet, right? They don't eat pork. Um, they, uh, there are all these different sort of rules and regulations in their diets. And, and so the Gentiles don't have to observe this. And so what's happening here in verse 12 is that Peter has left these dietary restrictions behind because he is now a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it says that he's eating with the Gentiles, I want you to picture they're sitting around having bacon sandwiches and there's no problem, okay? They're they're fellowshipping, they're enjoying each other's company. But then notice what happens. Some men came from James. These are men who are part of what are called the circumcision party. These are the false teachers who have infiltrated the church in Galatia. They're the ones who are teaching faith plus circumcision equals justification. And when some of these guys show up, Peter starts to feel the eyes of people looking at him. He starts to feel what the scriptures call the fear of man. Right? Has anybody ever else felt the fear of man where you're, you're sort of looking over your shoulder, you're very aware of everybody thinking about you? And so Peter, he begins to fear in his heart, and it says he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles. Now this is very important, important enough that Paul would oppose him to his face. Verse 13 tells us why it's so important. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter has influence, right? You have influence. And when you start to believe a false gospel, the people around you who are influenced by you, they start to subtly believe that false gospel as well. Now don't miss this. We see two important names right here, Peter or Cephas and Barnabas. Peter was with Jesus, y'all. Like he did ministry with the Lord. He chopped a guy's ear off for the Lord. Like he was in the trenches and Jesus didn't commend it. I should probably say that in case you're not familiar. Like what kind of church is this? Peter was with Jesus. He believed the gospel. Peter had seen the resurrected Christ with his own eyes. Peter sat on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and was restored to ministry after his failures and shortcomings. And that same guy who believes the gospel was led astray from the true thing. Friends, it is a subtle drift from the gospel. It's not something that most usually you're even conscious of. Just little by little, you start to add something to your justification. And this is a big deal. It's a really big deal because you lose the power. Remember? What's important for us to recognize here is that Peter, who believed the gospel and loved the Lord Jesus, still failed. And here's where our myth comes into play today. I think some of us, for varying reasons, we get this subtle belief in our hearts or our minds that if I believe the gospel, 
what the trail is going to look like is only better and better and better and better and better and better. And I want you to understand, in the curve of eternity, better and better and better. But the idea that the trail looks like this and not a little bit more like this is a myth. And it's a myth that is robbing you of the vitality that the gospel wants to provide. Friends, many of us walk around anxious because our walk with God looks a little bit like two steps forward and one step back. Anybody else? And then when we face that, when we realize I'm not, I feel like I'm not getting any better. I feel like I'm maybe even getting worse. And then you start trying to go, I just need to get back to who I once was. I need to get back to who I was. Can I go ahead and, I love you, pull the rug out from under your feet right now. That person's gone. You're never going to be who you were again. You know why? Because God is making someone new. He's making a new person. When you walk around with this low-grade sense of guilt this low-grade sense of shame that is different than the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, but is more like a tiptoeing through life because I'm terrified that the lightning bolt is finally gonna strike me. This is a false gospel that you are believing. And when you do that, one of two things tend to happen. We either quit in discouragement or we leave our faith in bitterness. Like we quit because we go, I can't, I can't keep the rules. I can't do what God has called me to do. How can I live under these heavy burdens? Or we go, you're asking way too much of me, Jesus. And we quit. Can I tell you this morning, I want you to feel some, some hope. Take a deep breath from the truth of the gospel. On the curve of eternity, it is up and to the right. Your future, if you are in Christ, is bright. You have a bright future. But it's going to be a bumpy ride. It's going to be bumpy. The marker of a Christian is not that they don't fail. The marker of a Christian is what they do with their failure. See, for you this morning to walk out of here believing that it is your moral perfection that makes you okay with God would be maybe one of the most damaging things that your soul could believe. Your belief in the gospel does not mean that you will not fail. What it does mean is that you take your failures to the feet of Jesus. You take your failures in repentance you take your failures and you make war against the sin that's trying to kill you. Yes. It is not our failures that make us Christian, or lack of failures that make us Christians. It is taking our failures to the Lord Jesus. And friends, can I tell you, 
Oh man, this is good news. I want you to believe this so badly this morning. Philippians 1, 6 says this, and I am convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You know what that means? He's gonna finish. He's gonna finish what he started. It's gonna be slower than you want it to be. It's gonna be bumpier than you want it to be. It's gonna be harder than you want it to be, but guess what? The Lord will finish what he began in you. Believe this. Don't believe the subtle lie that only up and to the right is really the way of the kingdom. The Lord will not quit until you look like Jesus. He's gonna do it, all right? So first myth, number one, Christianity is only up and to the right. Don't believe that. Believe the gospel. Jesus will finish what he started. It's going to be a bumpy ride, but he's going to get us there. Amen? All right. Myth number two. Myth number two. Look at verse 15 and 16 in the text. It says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Listen to this. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's going to be very important here in a moment. Now, um, I, as a personal life goal, one of the things I try to do is at least one epic hike a year, a big one, right? So I obviously have to leave the Midwest because we don't really have that kind of thing around here. Um, but so last year was my first 14er in Colorado, climbed Mount Elbert, and then later uh, this coming fall, late September, early October, with some friends, I'm going to do a rim-to-rim hike of the Grand Canyon. That's this coming year. And uh, while we're at the Grand Canyon, I keep coming across these videos of tightrope walkers in the Grand Canyon. Oh, man. I really want to try it while I'm out there. Now, to, to be fair, I've, I've never, like, slacklined a few feet off the ground. But go big or go home, right? And I'll never go home. I'll die first. <laughs> The image of this person out between these two distant rock walls, right out in the middle, standing, it looks like on air, is just exhilarating to my soul. There's something wrong with me, so I see that kind of thing, and it just excites me, it fires me up. And so, um, I haven't had any training, to be fair. I've never been on a tightrope. I don't plan to train before we get there, but I'm I'm still gonna give it a shot. Now, okay, imagine, I'm not really gonna do it. I see some faces, they're like, this guy. Um, But imagine if that were true with me for just a minute, that I'm going to, uh, that I'm gonna walk the tightrope with no experience. To get on the tightrope, and let's say they tether you in so you can't fall to your death. You can just fall and embarrass yourself. And they tether me in and I get out there and I get one step onto the tightrope and head over heels <laughs> off of the rope. I go. 
And they pull me back to the edge, and they pull me up, and they say, hey, Nick, no problem. Guess what? You can have another chance. Is a second chance going to help me? I can't do it, right? I don't have the skills. I don't have the training. I don't have the pay grade to be able to walk across the tightrope. And friends, I need you to understand something very important about the gospel this morning. The gospel is not a second chance. Because do you know what you would do with the second chance? The exact same thing you did with the first one, right? Miserable failure in keeping God's perfect, holy law. The gospel is not a second chance. Here's, that's the myth. Um, here's what the gospel is. It is someone else taking the first and only chance for you. The idea is not now you have an opportunity to be good enough to earn your salvation. That's not the truth, right? That's exactly what Paul is telling us here in this text. You cannot justify yourself by works of the law. You cannot walk the tightrope into eternity. It's impossible. But how can you be justified? The text tells us. Verse 16. But through faith in Jesus Christ, we, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Friends, God is not giving you a second chance this morning. He wiped the slate clean. He's given you a new identity. It's not a second chance. He took the test for you. This is the good news of the gospel. It's the wonder of the gospel. See, if I'm honest with you, there are times that I think about this reality and I almost feel a twinge of embarrassment. I go, I mean, am I bringing anything more to my salvation? Am I bringing anything? Jonathan Edwards says it beautifully, the only thing that we bring to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. You are a recipient of salvation. Is God gonna change your life and your behavior? Absolutely. But unless you receive grace, through the gospel, by faith, you are disconnected from the engine. There's no power. How can you keep the law of God without the power of the gospel? It's impossible. You can't. And so here is a subtle danger that we can buy into. I want you to think about this for a minute. Legalism, which is what... Um, the, the Judaizers, the false teachers in this book are embracing, looks like this. Works plus faith equals justification. In other words, if I do right and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I will be right before God. And there, to be fair, there are good words in there, right? Works is a good word. Faith is a good word. Justification is a good word. This is why it's so subtle in believing a false gospel. But look at what these, these verses are teaching us about the gospel reality. Faith. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are then justified. You're declared 
right before God. And then what happens? Good works. It's a very subtle difference, but it is a trajectory-shaping difference. Do you want to be exhausted and fearful all the time? Then I suggest choosing the top one. Do you want to have the peace of Christ reign and rule richly in your life and experience actual change? Believe the gospel. Don't believe the myth. The gospel is not a second chance for you. The gospel is someone else taking the first and only chance for you and then crediting it to you. When you believe that, you reconnect to the engine. Okay? That makes sense? Myth number three, and we're almost done. I can't change. Oh, I've definitely felt this one. I believed this one. Look back at verse 17 in the text. It says, But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I want to ask you, as we begin to think about these verses here, um, what's the soundtrack that runs in your mind about Jesus? About this whole thing. You know what I mean by the soundtrack in your mind, right? The, the voice in your head. What, what's it sound like? The thing that you say over and over and over to yourself. You see, our, our soundtrack, what it, what's playing over and over in the back of our head, um, shapes our belief probably more than anything. Um, I forget who said it originally, but I think it's helpful wisdom. Nobody talks to you more than you, right? Um, and so be careful what you're saying, right? You have a lot of influence in that department. And so right here in these short verses, what Paul begins to unpack and uncover is the tension between what's already true about us and what's not yet true about us. Did you notice that? If we too were found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? What Paul is essentially saying right here, he's like, what do I do with the fact that I believe this and I love the Lord Jesus, but I'm still struggling with sin? I still struggle to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Right? Did, uh, w when you became a follower of Jesus, were you just immediately perfectly morally holy? Eh, please don't raise your hand. If you do, find another church because this, we're just a mess around here. Right? There's only one guy who's ever done that, who's been morally perfect. 
the king himself. That tension between who we are and what we experience is a wide, wide gap. And Paul is, Paul is pleading with us. He's saying there is a way to change even in between that tension. There is a way for your deeds to more and more line up with the person you have been declared to be. And believing that as a soundtrack will lead, put you in a lot different place than believing the myth that you can't change. Have you ever said some version of this in your head about a particular sin struggle? I'm just always gonna struggle with that. That's just always gonna be a temptation. And what I'm not telling you this morning is that you don't need to build fences in your life, that you don't need to watch out for things that wanna take you down. Those are very real. But what I am saying is that the power to actually transform is not in, primarily in the walls that you build. It is in the Lord that you take shelter with. That's where the power comes from. It's like the difference if you just fight it um, on your own, right? I'm just gonna build walls, that's all I'm gonna do. Walls are good, right, to keep us from sin, um, but it's sort of like fighting sin with a squirt gun, right? It's like it sort of puts out some of the flames right up close to the wall, but it doesn't do much damage. When you hide yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ and you fight with him, guess what happens? The fire hose of the gospel begins to lay down the flames of sin that so easily entangles and burns. That's where the power comes from. Something interesting in this text I want you to notice is um, in verse 19. It says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let's stop there for just a moment. The law of God can only justify someone who's alive. Think about this for a moment. The law only has capability to justify someone who is living. In other words, how was Jesus justified in his life? He was justified by keeping the perfect holy law of God while he was living. But what did this text say about you? About Paul, about me? I died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Friends, if you are in Christ, this means the law cannot in any sense justify you. The law is useful, but not to make you right with God. Well, how do we, how do we follow the law? If it's not by our own effort, if it's not by rising up to the occasion, how in the world do we do it? Paul gives us the central image of change in the New Testament right here in Galatians 2.20. If you want to know how to change Think about this verse with me again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want you to think of the very image, the mechanics of crucifixion. 
When someone is nailed to a cross, what happens in the person of that, or in the process of that person dying is they've got nails through their ankles and nails through their forearms holding them to the cross, and they would raise up and breathe, cry out in agony, get a breath, and then because of the terrible wounds in their body, they would then slouch back down And in slouching down and getting quiet, the victim of crucifixion would gain enough energy to pull themselves back up and get another breath. And this is a lot like what the Christian life looks like. If you've been crucified with Christ, if your sin has been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ, make no mistake, crucifixion, it's a certain death. 100% kill rate, but it's a slow death. And so here's what's gonna happen. As you work to put your sins of the body to death, your sins sometimes, you know what they're going to do? They're going to raise up. They're going to cry out. It's going to be very obvious to you that you are tempted, that you are being pulled, that you are being drawn, that you are being fought by your sins. And then here's what's going to happen. You either give in to temptation in that moment or you resist. And when you give in, or even when you resist, your sin then slouches back down like the victim of crucifixion. And it gets quiet for a minute. And that's when most of us usually go, man, I finally didn't look at that on the internet. I've made it a week. Or I finally didn't do this for a while. Or I finally talked respectfully to my parents. I I did it. And that's the moment when we think we've had victory. But hear me very clearly. In the moment that you think you've had victory right there is usually the moment your sin is gathering strength to attack you again. And so friends, it is not in the moment of greatest temptation that you do the most important work of fighting your sin. It's in the moment when your sin is quiet. That's when you drive more nails in the sin. Guess what? It's hard to fight a sin that is yelling in your face. But you know when it gets easier to fight that sin? When it's not on your radar for a minute. That's when you have to fight. So how do we fight? We're almost done here, friends. I want to give you this morning five practices of crucifying the flesh. How do you drive nails into the enemy of your sin in between those times of intense temptation? I'm going to do these practices for the rest of my life, and I invite you to join me. Um, Number one, scripture. Jesus fought sin and temptation with the words of the word. You have to hide scripture in your heart. That's how we fight I've had a friend recently use the language of fighter verses. I love that. We need the scriptures to turn up the soundtrack of the gospel in the back of our minds. Number two, prayer. Communicating with and being with God. Adoring him, confessing your sins and temptation, thanking him for his provision, making your needs and requests known to him. That intimacy and connection with God is what's going to make you look at your sin and go, that disgusts me. I can't even fathom doing that again because I have this intimate connection with my father. Number three, reflection. This is where the Proverbs tell us that a man's heart is like a deep water. 
and a man of understanding draws it out. We have to think carefully about life. What's bothering me? What's tempting me? Where is the enemy coming around the edges of my life to ambush me? This is what reflection helps us to identify. As we sit with God in the quiet and say, God, I'm worried about this temptation. I'm anxious over here and we give that to God. It puts more nails into our sin. Number four, rest. You know when you're worse at fighting temptation? When you're tired. When your body is tired, your inhibitions go down and you make worse decisions. God made you for communion with him. And so whether that is a 24-hour Sabbath period or all you can do right now is take three hours to take a nap and be with Jesus, we must rest to fight sin well. And then number five, body. God put you in a body. Your, um, because of the temptations we've given into in the past, oftentimes our biology even craves sin. It, may, it makes it hard, right, to fight against our sin. And this is why we must submit our bodies to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says of his body, therefore I beat my body and make it my slave. My goal is to not be controlled by my body, but to use my body to present my members for righteousness instead of unrighteousness. And so this means you gotta take care of yourself. You gotta, you gotta right, it's, it's more than even sleep, it's right, taking care of this body that God has given you so that you can honor him with it. Disciplining yourself so that you are, contr- you are controlling yourself by grace. These are some of the ways, at least the fundamental ones, that we drive nails into our sin in those moments. And what happens as we do that? Verse number 21 tells us, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Friends, you will become, Lord willing, over your lifetime, more and more righteous you're going to look more like Jesus, Lord willing. And what I want you to hear today about that is this simple truth. Effort and earning are different things. (laughs) This life of transformation and change is going to take effort. You're not earning anything in that effort, but goodness gracious, you're going to have to fight. We need to get some fight back in us, y'all. If we're really going to change, friend, hear this promise and hope of the gospel, you can change. Slowly but surely, you can change. A band, you can go ahead and come on up. Friends, the the gospel of Jesus is honestly more gracious than I'm comfortable with sometimes. Like, Jesus, it's, it's too much. It's too satisfying. It's too saving, it's too beautiful, it's, it's more transforming than you or I are capable of transforming ourselves. And so this, this morning, friends, I wanna invite you to drop the myths. What myth are you believing? Stop, believe the truth of the gospel and find rest for your souls. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father,
I know that there are some of us in the room who are disconnected for the, from the engine of the gospel and we're trying with all our might to fight and we're not getting anywhere. And Jesus, this morning, I'm praying that they would connect back to the source, that they would believe afresh in the Lord Jesus, that they'd find rest for their souls and strength for their hands and hope for their future. Have your way in this room, Holy Spirit. We invite you to work. Your ministry is welcome here. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, friends, we don't just want to hear the word. We want to be doers of the word. And so that's why we want to help you respond here at New City today. We typically do that in three key ways. Number one, we reflect. This may be your first time reflecting, that practice of nailing nails in your flesh. Where does God want you to believe the truth this morning? Ask him, reflect, think, pray, process with a friend even. This is an appropriate time for that. Number two, we remember. We remember that the only thing that justifies us is the body and blood of Jesus shed on our behalf. And so right here in the front, there are two stations, and then there are two in the back where you can get a little cup of juice and a wafer that represents his broken body and shed blood. When you take it this morning, I want you to remember, I bring nothing else to my salvation. Jesus brought it all. I only received it by faith. It's good news. And number three, friends, we rehearse. We rehearse the day that there will be a perfect connection to the engine, that you won't have to struggle and fight anymore. That day's coming. And so friends, that's why right now we must sing as a victorious people. Let's rewrite the soundtrack in our minds. We are more than conquerors in Christ, amen? Respond when you're ready. I love you, New City. I love being your pastor.